I'm excited to continue our series uh, today on Trusted, um, as we're just digging deep into why we can trust God's Word. Um, with this series, my goal is really to uh, and give you things to defend your faith when it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture. Thank you. Um, and so today's conversation is actually going to focus on uh, miracles in the Scripture. So it's going to focus on miracles in the Scripture. Uh, today, it, and what we're, what we're thinking about a miracle is an unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose. So that's how you would define a miracle. An unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose. Craig Keener is this theologian um, who studies miracles. That's what he, his primary focus of study is. And he did a survey uh, over 15 years ago now, but these survey results conservatively estimate that as many as 200 million people alive today have personally experienced or witnessed an extraordinary event unaccounted for by the current state of scientific understanding, and that all of these people said it was in direct response to praying to Jesus. Now, that was 15 years ago. So that number, I'm sure, has grown even more significantly since that study. And I believe that some of you in this room are part of that 200 million people that are alive today that would say that you have, in fact, seen an unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose. And I know confidently that there's at least one family here today that I've been talking to uh, about how they have seen a direct response, a miracle, more than one, really, and a direct response to prayer. And, and specifically, Mark and Dara Furman can link the authority of Scripture, the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God uh, to this miracle. And so I want to invite Mark up to start us off today um, to just tell us a part of this story about his family firsthand. Pastor Steve, can you hand him that microphone right there? And uh, would you welcome Mark as he comes to share with us? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. Many of you know the story of our daughter, Lindsay, who received a heart transplant in 2001. What very few, if any of you know, is the God story that is just as miraculous as the heart transplant itself. Last week, Pastor Quint challenged us to know God's word and to share our testimony. This morning, I'm going to share a small portion of our faith journey. On Christmas Eve of 1998, our daughter, who was 14 at the time, was diagnosed with an incurable heart disease. It was called idiopathic restrictive cardiomyopathy. Yeah. You would think after all these years I wouldn't be affected by this, but I am. The disease was the result of an unknown virus that attacked her heart, and the only medical cure would be a heart transplant. Well, after 17 months of declining health, on May 17, 2001, Lindsay was admitted to a Cleveland area hospital to await the transplant. One morning, shortly after Lindsay was admitted, I was in her hospital room and I asked if I could borrow one of her calling cards. Now, for those of you that are under 25 years old, a calling card was a credit card that you could use to dial long distance, okay? <clears throat> we didn't, you know, it was before the wide use of cell phones, okay? 
And people had donated hundreds of dollars of phone cards prior to Lindsay being admitted. Well, Lindsay said, sure, they're on the tray next to my bed. Go ahead and use them. I'm going to take a shower. So I took one of the cards out of the envelope. I made my call home, and I put the card back in the envelope on the tray. Lindsay came out of the bathroom, and uh, she was drying her hair, which can take about a half hour. You'll see, you'll see why later. She said, where's the phone cards? I told her that I put them back on the tray. And we glanced toward the tray, and to my utter shock and surprise, there was no phone card. They were gone. I panicked. I knew how valuable those cards were. I sure wasn't looking forward to calling my wife, Dara, and explaining what was going on. I was the responsible adult in the room, right? So Lindsay and I tore her room apart looking for that envelope. We then got help from nurses, cleaning people, blood technicians, doctors, you name it. They came in looking for that lost envelope. The cards were not to be found anywhere. Well, we had pretty much given up hope. And then Connie, one of the cleaning people, came through and she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Food services was just here a little bit ago. They cleaned the trays out. Let me go check on it personally. <clears throat> so Connie took off and she made some calls and checked into it. And after about 10 minutes, she came back into Lindsay's room and she was totally dejected. She explained that all the trays had been cleared and nobody had found them. As we sat around wondering what to do next, a woman came down the hallway, dressed in white, a black woman. In her hand was a greasy, food-stained envelope with all of Lindsay's phone cards in them. She handed me that envelope. She smiled and she said, Jeremiah 33-3, and walked away. I stood there with my mouth open, half in shock and half in wonderment at what that what she had said to us. So what would you do? You'd go running for your Bible, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's what I did. I thumbed through my Bible and I came to the 33rd chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Here's what it says. Call. What did I lose? Phone cards. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. You do not know. Well, the irony and inspiration of this verse was overwhelming, especially since I'd lost phone cards. Well, needless to say, I continued reading in the book of Jeremiah for the next several weeks. We were going to witness some great and unsearchable events in the coming weeks. See, Lindsay was scheduled to go to Jamaica that summer on a mission trip. So when she had to cancel it because of her health, the hospital became her mission field. We simply loved on, prayed for, and shared our faith with a hospital floor filled with parents and children who needed hope. The hospital became increasingly aware and then concerned about our faith. Would we refuse a heart if it became available? Their concern was so great that after 11 weeks in the hospital, Lindsay's transplant doctor came up to us and said, we need you to find a different hospital for your daughter. Well, this was followed by a request for my wife and I to attend a hospital board meeting the next day. It was Wednesday, July 18, 2001. In that meeting, they gave their reason and their concern about the possibility of us refusing a heart if it became available. I then looked around the room 
filled with doctors, administrators, and so forth, I asked them all a simple question. Why do you pray? Do any of you pray? Why? Why do you pray? I answered the question for them. We pray because we believe there's a God in heaven who hears and listens and answers those prayers. That's why we pray. I went on to explain that Lindsay wanted proof that she still needed a heart transplant before proceeding with the possible transplant itself. The board thought it over, and then they agreed to a heart catheterization the next morning. This was truly a breaking point in our faith journey. They did the procedure the following morning on Thursday, July 19th. We could tell from Lindsay's face that she came out of recovery, she knew she was not healed. The catheterization actually confirmed that Lindsay was worse. She was in worse shape than when she was admitted. She truly needed a medical miracle now. God, where are you? We set this up for you. Don't you understand? Do the God thing. Come on, we put our faith on the line. Where are you? We were so frustrated, so uncertain. As Lindsay was recovering, she had reason to go to her window and look outside. It was a perfectly cloudless, sunny day, with one exception. There was one cloud directly overhead outside Lindsay's room. Lindsay took a picture. There's that picture. I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. You cannot explain. Unbelievable. I have one word for that picture. Whoa. We now sense that we were in a race with time. I stayed with Dar and Lindsay on Thursday and Friday, but then came home Saturday, Saturday night with Amanda, my other daughter. Sunday morning before church, I was reading Isaiah, the 58th chapter, verses 5 through 8. Here's what it says. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Well, I pondered those verses as I headed off to church with Manda that morning. Now, I'd like to say that the pastor preached a message that the skies parted and a voice of God thundered down and, you know, all of a sudden I, I got this revelation, but such was not the case. What I did hear toward the end of the service was my daughter Amanda asking if we could go out for lunch. I told her, of course we could. It would be nice spending some quality time with my other daughter for a change. We were just about to leave the foyer or for the foyer of the church and I glanced and somehow I noticed a woman woman sitting by herself right here, right here. I had every reason to leave. Would any of you have challenged me if I just got up 
out of that pew and walked out of here with my daughter? Any of you? No. But I just felt, I felt like God was saying, you need to talk to her. She was a very plain-looking woman in her mid-50s. She had a look of desperation on her face as I walked up to introduce myself. I shook her hand, and I told her my name, and I asked if I could help her. What she said shocked me. She said her name was Cheryl. She'd driven here from California with her daughter. They had $10 to their name. They were running out of gas. All of their earthly possessions were in the parking lot outside here. Their, her husband recently died, and they lost their house. They were running out of gas and money, and she said, we really don't know what we're going to do. I said, I do. You're going to go to lunch with us. As we sat at the restaurant, I shared our story with Cheryl and her daughter, LaSalle. They sat in amazement as we told them about what Lindsay was going through. I also explained that we wouldn't really be able to help her practically because we were spending so much of our time in Cleveland. I knew we needed to get Cheryl help, and as it turned out, one of our pastors was at the same restaurant we were at. In fact, there was only one other couple there from our church, and it happened to be one of our assistant pastors. So I went over to explain to Pastor Terry about Cheryl's situation, and he had this strange, strange look on his face. He said, so that's where she ended up. It's like, what? As it turns out, Cheryl was sitting in the front pew, and our senior pastor was looking for Pastor Terry, and when they came back, she was gone because she was with me. How crazy is that, right? So I introduced Pastor Terry to Cheryl, and I felt confident that she was in good hands. Just as a side note, Cheryl ended up working in our school cafeteria for a period of time. The verses I read from Isaiah earlier that morning were going through my mind. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Hmm. The timing of our chance encounter with Cheryl was unusual and unexpected, to say the least. The next day was Monday, July 23rd. Ironically, it was the only day in previous three months that Dara and I were at home together. We, heard, we had a press conference here that morning to announce a fundraising campaign to offset our daughter's hospitalization costs. Our day was filled with interviews and TV reporters, radio stations, and our local newspaper. Exhausted, we went to bed with, after a very, very busy day. It felt weird to be, get, to be together in our own house with the only one missing was Lindsay. We just drifted off to sleep. The phone rings. I looked at the clock, I kid you not, midnight. Our first thought was something was very wrong with Lindsay. Sure enough, it was one of Lindsay's doctors, Dr. Lane, only he did not have bad news to report. He had good news, very, very good news. Lindsay's heart was on its way. Dr. Lane told us that we might want to scrub up, drive to the hospital in the next few hours. Are you kidding me? We're leaving now, right? This is fantastic. As we drove to the hospital, the verse from Isaiah were running through my mind. What did God say would happen when we take care of others? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. 
Lindsay's healing did quickly appear, and seven days after receiving her heart, she was discharged from the hospital. And seven days later, on my wife's Dara's birthday, she came home to a hero's welcome. Lindsay is here today with her husband, Adam, and then Jonah, Mark, our grandsons in the nursery. If they, along with my wife and Amanda, my daughter, would please stand, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I often wonder what would have happened if I hadn't spotted Cheryl sitting in that pew. I wonder what our journey would have looked like if those lost phone cards hadn't miraculously been found and delivered with that prophetic word, Jeremiah 33.3. See, we called out to God and he did answer and show us truly unsearchable and amazing things which are hard to explain. I can't explain it today. I do know that God's word is exactly as Hebrews 4.12 proclaims. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, God's word is as relevant today as the day God inspired it. You can trust it with your life. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing story. And Mark was sharing with me earlier today that that's about 5% of what he could share today. There are so many other amazing details that, um, that he could have shared. Some of you were very bothered by that being written like, Sideways, so I just, you're welcome. All right, so just for the rest of our time together, um, I want to talk a little bit about, now you've seen a, a real life example of what God can do. They experienced an unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose, and Lindsay is here today living a life for Jesus. That is the accomplished a specific purpose. And that's so beautiful. And I love that just to hear the faithfulness of God in their family. And so when we are trusting the word of God, when we are talking specifically about miracles, perhaps you'll leave here today and you will retell some of the Furman story and say, at church today, this guy got up there and this is what he said and this is what God did. And maybe someone will, will come at you and try to discredit the miraculous. Some will even say, because miracles are in this book, it must not be true. This must be a book of stories or just a book of legends. But what I want to look at today is just some common ways that people without faith respond to miracles and how we can converse with them intelligently. How we can intelligently help them process through that some people might say that miracles can't or won't happen that aren't real and they make the Bible less than true. Because the truth is they validate the Bible even more because they're in there. So this is one example of something somebody might say is miracles must have natural explanations. Miracles must have natural 
explanations. So we see in the scripture that some things happened that now, years later, the scientific community can explain. Let me give you an example. Um, The rainbow after the flood. The rainbow after the flood, they said, was a miraculous sign from God. Now we know that rainbows are caused by the refraction of light through water drops in the atmosphere. It rains when it's going to flood. There was rain. When the sun came out, there was a rainbow. And so some people would say, well, that's a natural explanation to what we credit God for. Or another example, some researchers say that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by a volcano. In Genesis 19, it says that God rained down burning sulfur on this city. And and there is now... Um, geographical evidence that there was uh, an erupted volcano around where they think Sodom and Gomorrah was. And so that's a natural explanation. But I would say to someone that says, you know, miracles have natural explanations, is that natural explanations in no way discount God's activity. Natural explanations in no way discount God's activity because God works in and through natural events and they are part of his plan. The universe is under his authority. Even if someone feels they can discount a miracle with a natural explanation, the timing of those natural disasters is very difficult to dispute. No scientist can make a volcano erupt at exactly the right time to demonstrate God's power in judging evil. You cannot decide, you cannot create a volcano to erupt. We don't decide when a rainbow is created in the sky. It is the exact elements that the atmosphere needs. No human being can create winds that are so powerful that they part the Red Sea at the moment the Israelites are at the shore needing a rescue. So yes, God may have used the wind, his wind, (laughs) to create a complete miracle That is no less amazing or supernatural. And then you could also defend miracles if someone says they all have natural explanations with this. There are actually many biblical miracles where there can be no natural explanation. A stick turned into a snake before the eyes of many people. An iron axe head floated. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus' body after execution and 36 hours in a tomb. Another thing unbelievers or skeptics might say to you when you're talking about miracles is that miracles cannot happen because they break the laws of nature. They break the laws of nature. Now, this argument is favored uh, by the deists, and it's often used today by those in scientific communities. A scientific observation records the way that things usually operate. So they do all kinds of experiments and all sorts of tests, and then they say, okay, 99 times out of 99 times, this apple fell off the table, therefore this is a law of nature. And that's how they determine these things. But often, often these theories are modified in light of later observations. I'm going to give you an example. Einstein had a theory of relativity. Einstein is a smart guy, and he explained that the small particles moving near the speed of light in a way that Newton's laws of motion never could. So for centuries, we believed a law of nature that Newton created was true until Einstein temporarily proved it wrong. He had this theory that he could disprove. 
And so all of a sudden, that law of nature was no longer a law. So when speaking about laws of nature, to argue that because things normally happen a certain way, that they can only happen that way, is a very bold claim, even for a scientist. Ironically, talking about laws of nature actually implies the presence of a lawgiver. Who made the laws? Somebody created them. Was it the universe that decided? And if the laws are established by a supernatural agent, then they could also be modified or temporarily suspended for a purpose. If God wants to suspend a law of nature, he is free to do so. Because after all, it's his law. And just one other note, we should be careful about assuming that miracles do break the laws of nature because it is actually proven by scientific communities everywhere that we do not even know all the laws of nature yet. We don't even know all of them. And so what if there is some glitch in the universe (laughs) that we don't even know that thousands of years from now it will prove that it is a law of nature? Okay, here's the third one. Some people will say miracles don't exist because I've never seen one. I've never seen one. Step one, invite them to Erie First Assembly. Okay, do that. Here's how you can talk to someone that would say that. Miracles should be rare events. That's why they're miracles. If it happened every day, it would just be something that we're used to. But by their very nature, they should be rare events. But all the time, we are trusting and accepting the testimony of other people about events or facts that we cannot verify ourselves. It would be foolish for people who live in Africa to deny that snow exists because they've never seen it. We have six months of proof, right? We can send it to them any day of the week. You can't send snow. That analogy broke down. But the point is, we spend a lot of our lives trusting other people. Now, we should, of course, be cautious in accepting everything we hear. But if the evidence is sound, then why wouldn't we trust a miracle even though we haven't seen it? So miracles actually set Christianity apart from other major world religions. There is no other major world religion in which miracles occupy a central role. I believe that miracles have a purpose. They aren't just God wanting to amaze and astound us or or for God to show off his power. What they are is, is a sign to confirm the authority of those that God sent and to testify to the truth of the revelation that they bring. They are a sign to the unbeliever, to those who lack faith. And it's interesting because we see a pattern in scripture that miracles increase Uh, around periods where a new era of God's revelation is about to be released. Let me give you some examples. When Moses was was taking the the people in in the Exodus, they were taking the Israelites out, they were about to free generations from slavery, and there were all kinds of miracles that happened around that time. When Elijah was paving the way for the beginning of this prophetic age, we see all of these miracles in his life. And then, of course, when Jesus is here in his last three years before, on earth, before, before his um, crucifixion and resurrection, he's with his disciples, and he's performing all of these miracles. And it's prophesied in the end times that there will be an increase of miracles. That's because there's this new era of revelation that God is about to bring. And so it doesn't say that miracles cease in other 
times of history, but they are less frequent. But what we cannot do is say, just because we aren't living in a time where there is a ton of miraculous activity, that that didn't happen other times in history. So not only is Christianity anchored in miracles, but the uniqueness of the miracle is significant. Um, Nowhere in ancient mythology or folklore do we ever find the claim that an indisputably human person died and within living memory of the others was raised from the dead physically. That is a very unique miracle that Christianity claims. And if we're going to take a significant stand that miracles, in fact, do happen as Christians, then, then this is the miracle. This is the hill that we need to die on. This is the miracle that we need to fight for with all of our chips. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you need any more analogies? Okay, this is it, guys. This is the miracle. Maybe you won't fight that the water really turned into wine or this person that really was, was healed from their leprosy, but this is the miracle that you need to fight for with everything in you, and that is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the chief miracle, and that is the miracle that our entire faith stands upon. In fact, uh, when I was in Israel um, on a Holy Land tour, our guide was a Jewish man, and, and he knew the scripture so well. He knew it back and forth. In fact, we would walk around Jerusalem and he would say, uh, this is where Jesus was born. This is where he preached. This is probably where he ate supper. This is where he fished. This is where he walked. And he knew it. And, and he said, even the Muslims in the country and the people of other faiths believed in the historical footprint of Jesus. No one questioned or denied that he died on a specific cross, on a specific hill. If you asked a Jewish person or a Muslim person in Israel, where did Jesus die, they would point to the same hill that that we say, right there. That all happened. They believed the scriptures much more confidently than the American church. When we got to the garden tomb, our guide left us at the gate. I remember looking around for him. Who's going to tell us about this? And he left us at the gate, and a a, a pastor from England gave us the tour. And our guide's Jewish faith just didn't believe in this part of the account. And so he did not want to give the tour. And we met back up with him after. I actually have a picture of myself in in that place. This was my favorite and most emotional moment on that entire experience. Because this was the miracle that sets us apart from all other people in the world. This fact that we believe that he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. This is the game changer miracle. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And so, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying is if you cannot stand on the fact and the miracle that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then our faith is useless. And so 
to trust the scripture, we have to trust that there was miracles. It doesn't make it a legend or a, or a, or a book of stories. It makes it the truth of all that God did. And you must be confident that you believe that the resurrection is a miracle and that it happened for your faith to survive. The scripture says our faith stands and falls on this. And so just, just quickly this morning, I want to give you a few ways that you can defend the resurrection actually happened, that it was a miracle. And maybe this is for you, or maybe this is for someone that, that you'll talk to someday or someone that you'll share with about why you believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. Now, it receives ample coverage uh, in the New Testament, and it can therefore be closely um, looked at from several angles. And although the resurrection appears incredible, it is based on some very solid evidence. So the first fact that we can say about the resurrection is that it is not disputed that Jesus, in fact, died on the cross. This is a fact that we can prove, that he did die. Uh, let me just give you a couple reasons why. Um, Roman soldiers certified his death. That's what they did for a living. They checked if people were dead. They, they certified it. It's in the record. Um, they decided not to break his legs, which is customary to make sure you die on a cross. Make sure you die in a crucifixion, they break your legs. But they were so convinced he was dead that they decided not even to break his legs. They pierced his side, if you remember, and the scripture says that blood and water ran out. Well, medically, blood and water, the, 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 the cells and the serum separate only after death. And so by doing that, they were actually testing to see if he was dead. If that was a sign of his death. Now, some have tried to theorize that Jesus fainted, was revived in the cold tomb, which means he didn't ever die in the first place, and then he escaped and he disappeared, and he actually died a natural death later. And to be honest with you, I think this is much harder to substantiate than actually believing the miracle, uh, because that would mean a man was beaten on a cross, impaled uh, on the cross, uh, wrapped in 75 pounds of bandages while he played dead through the preservation, then figured out how to unwrap himself, push away a one-ton boulder, single-handedly overcome an armed guard, and then persuade 500 people that he conquered death. The foolishness of this position is evidenced by the fact that no one even suggested this possibility until centuries later. No secular historian alive, Josephus, alive at the time, Josephus, Pliny, Lucian, doubted that Jesus died. Nobody doubted that. All right, secondly, we know for a fact that the body was gone. We know for a fact that the body was gone. Um, Mary, uh, when she came to the tomb, she thought the Jews took it. But as soon as the rumor of resurrection came, as soon as people began to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they would have produced that body to stop that rumor right away. Because they would have want to brought death to that rise of Christianity. And they did not. Some people theorized the disciples took it. But when their own lives were threatened, they would have produced the body. They would have sold each other out and said, he has it. And no one ever said that. The tomb was heavily guarded. That body did not accidentally get lost. 
The third fact is that he returned. He, he returned post-resurrection. He returned post-resurrection. Despite Jesus's, I love this, he, he repeatedly said, I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to come back. Okay, he told his disciples that over and over and over. But all of his followers first thought of other explanations for the missing corpse. All of them thought, it must be something else. And so what convinced them? Well, Mary, the 12 disciples, the followers on the Emmaus Road, Paul, and 500 others saw Jesus with their eyes. Some of them had conversations and interactions that were recorded in the scripture for us to read. Now, some have said that, that was just hallucinations. These people, they just missed Jesus so much, they were just hallucinating as an alternative explanation. But hallucinations do not occur with varied groups on multiple occasions in different places over a period of several weeks. And hallucinations don't light real beach fires or eat real fish. But Jesus did that. And he probably did that so that he could prove he was not just an hallucination of their thinking. Christianity spread rapidly after Jesus' death. Most of the 12 disciples later died for their belief that Jesus was God. Now, dying for a belief does not make it true. We know that. But here's the point. They came to believe in Christ's divinity after being convinced that he really had risen from the dead. The last fact I want to share with you is this. Pastor Quint talked about a bridge last week and, and how when we are about to cross a bridge and we're about to, to enter onto a bridge with our car that we don't look up all the credentials and the facts of who built it and, and if it's reliable. We just look at the car in front of us and if it's not falling off the bridge, we're going to be okay. We trust that the reliability of this bridge, that the thousands of people who drove across that bridge tested it and can validate its stability and its trustworthiness. And his point was that we need to be testers of the bridge and we need to be able to trust our faith because we study it ourselves. But I'm going to use this analogy to fit my point because bosses can do that, okay? I'm going to take his analogy and I'm going to turn it to this. Generations of people... Smart people, theologians, historians, scientists, hundreds of thousands of people have believed in this miracle. People who have been persecuted, who have been ridiculed, who have lost their lives. And this is why the fact is Jesus Christ is a real Savior. He is not a fad and he is not a story. And he is not someone you read about. He is a person with whom you can enjoy genuine friendship and real relationship today because he is alive. And I can tell, I've gone across that bridge. <laughs> and I know many have, you have too. And I want you to study it for yourself, but I also want you to understand that this miracle has been tested and tested and tested and tested, and he never fails us. He never runs short. And he always is there to show that we can trust him. The, the um, team is going to come up, the worship team is going to come up, and I just want to end with this as we close this series. Have you trusted God's word so far in your life? 
Do you believe that the miracle that Jesus Christ died on a cross and that three days he rose from the dead and, and in that miracle he has taken away your sin and you can live with him forever? That miracle is a game changer for all of human history. It's worth looking into. It's worth doing all the research. I shared with you just a couple of these things, but there's so many things that solidly can trust that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. Would you all stand? Um, we're just going to sing this chorus quickly through uh, Give Me Faith. But here's what I really, really want to focus on this morning. If you are here today, and you have never trusted Jesus as your savior. You, you have never fully trusted the miracle that Jesus died on a cross and three days later rose from the dead. I want to encourage you today that it will require bravery, it will require boldness, but it is a decision that many people before you have made and have trusted the bridge, and even though if you don't know all the facts and you can't figure out all the details yet, that you can trust Jesus because he is alive and he is real and he is a savior that is active and moving and sovereign and good in our lives. And so all we have to do, all you have to do is pray a prayer, and I'm gonna pray that with you this morning. And I, I just want to encourage you, if you have never trusted Jesus with your life and you're here today, would you, does everyone just close their eyes and bow their head? And if this is you, just pray this along with me. Just pray silently. Just, you, don't, you don't have to even let anybody know you're doing it, but just right from your seat. Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you that you have performed a miracle the chief miracle, God, that you rose from the dead and that you are alive today, and I believe it, God. Would you give me faith to believe it? And today, I confess my sin, and I tell you I've fallen short. But I believe that because of your sacrifice, that you will make up for the difference, God, that you will cover my sin. And Lord, when I stand before you at the end of my life, God, that I will see the, that, that you have covered my sin, that you have made a way for me to be in heaven forever. So God, I just trust you. I don't know everything there is to know, but God, I trust you today. And it's in your name I pray. And if you prayed that prayer, I'm just gonna ask you as we sing this song, would you just come and go to the tables here on the sides? There's some people there that just wanna pray with you. They just wanna resource you. I also wanna encourage you that if you are here today and you just need more faith, if you just need more faith, if you just say, God, I just need to trust you more. You have said things to me in my life that I have forgotten that you have brought to my mind. I was thinking as Pastor Daniel was praying earlier that the enemy will always point to what we can't be, what we can't do, and how we cannot perform. And you just point back at the enemy and you say, but God does these things. God, my God is good and my God is sovereign and my God does all impossible things. And so if you just need that moment today, would you just come up? Would you just fill this space? Let's pray together. There's some people here to pray for you. Let's just end this series begging God for more faith to trust him. So would you come right now and let's just sing this with all we got. Pastor Grant, thank you for leading us.